National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. I still remember. Welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we'll get together here on KYMN Radio Northfield for around 30 minutes to discuss issues in national security. Some weeks we'll cover broad issues. Other weeks we'll take a deep dive into areas around the world you may not have heard much about but might find interesting. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If you have topics you'd like us to cover, please feel free to contact KYMN Radio. I'll do my very best to find guests to address your suggestion. So today we're one week away from the presidential inauguration. President-elect Joe Biden begins his term at noon Eastern time next Wednesday on January 20th. My guest for today's show of national security this week is someone who can help us review what may be President-elect Biden's most difficult strategic challenge, how to deal with the People's Republic of China. Mark Canning is a retired Foreign Service officer with the U.S. State Department. Mark began studying Chinese in 1979. He studied at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, where he became proficient. Then he spent three years as a linguist serving in the U.S. Army. After his time in the Army, Mark secured a two-year teaching position at a university in Kaohsiung, Taiwan, before landing a position as a newscaster and trade editor for International Community Radio Taipei, which was Taiwan's first English-language radio station. Mark joined the U.S. Department of State in 1989, was given another full year of Chinese language study at the Foreign Service Institute, followed by a three-year posting to the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou on the Chinese mainland. Mark was part of the negotiating team that secured the release of the American EP-3 aircrew that suffered a mid-air collision with a Chinese fighter aircraft near Hainan Island in April of 2001. Mark Canning retired from the State Department in 2018 and moved back to Minnesota. He's been teaching Chinese at Concordia Language uh, College Language Village, and he's been lecturing for Global Minnesota's Great Decisions Program on U.S.-China trade relations. We are very lucky to have Mark Canning joining us today to discuss, discuss the People's Republic of China. Mark Canning, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much, John. Good morning to you, and good morning to your KYMN listeners. Before we get into our deep discussions on China, uh, I personally remember where I was when I heard about the EP3 uh, collision, a mid-air collision. Could you tell us a little bit about that mid-air collision and, and your work in helping to negotiate the release of the U.S. Navy air crew? I'd be happy to. It was one of the more interesting episodes in my career. Uh, I played a relatively small role in it, but it was fascinating to be kind of the fly on the wall and see what happens behind the scenes in these international negotiations. I also remember where I was. We were having a barbecue at the consulate that day. And remember, it was April 1st. So when we were notified that we had to drop everything and get down to Hainan Island because an American airplane and a Chinese airplane had had a midair collision, our first reaction was, this is April 1st. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, pull the other one. It's got bells on it. Uh, But they said, no, no, turn on CNN, and we turned it on, and sure enough, it was the case. So uh, we went down. I went down with Ted Gong, who was the head of the consular section, and from the embassy in Beijing, the defense attache, who was a one-star brigadier general named Neil Selock, and one of his guys went down there. Uh, But let me just first set the stage, give a little bit of atmosphere, because people won't remember what it was like. We were two and a half months into George Bush's term, Uh, He had Don Rumsfeld, uh, some other hardliners. Cheney was vice president. The same people who took us into Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11 later that year. Uh, So this was going to be a test of his um, resolve to see how how firm he could be in the situation. Mm -hmm. 
Also, it's worth mentioning what China was like back then. Uh, China was still a growing economy. It wasn't the world power that it is today. Uh, per capita GDP in China in 2000 was about $950. Today, it's close to $11,000. Wow. For comparison purposes, we were at about $38,000 then. We're now at $64,000. Um, China was trying to get into the WTO, something that they would achieve in December of 2001, that same year. Uh, China was also hoping to win the uh, right to host the 2008 Olympics, okay. and that was going to be awarded that summer. And in fact, they got it a few months after this incident. So China was still, I think, rather solicitous of the world's goodwill on its best behavior. And remember, um, Deng Xiaoping, who was credited with the, the economic opening, he had a, a well-known statement that you were supposed to cherish obscurity. Just keep your head down, we'll all get rich, and, and don't provoke the world. And it's not the same China that we're dealing with today. But to get back to the incident on April 1st, um, the P-3 uh, flies out of a U.S. air base in Japan. It flies south and east, does a kind of boomerang-shaped route, does it a couple of hundred times a year. So this mm -hmm. is not an unusual uh, thing to do. Uh, typically, they fly south and east. They make a right turn. They fly towards Hainan Island in the South China Sea and then turn around and go back home. And uh, it's common for uh, there's a, a People's Liberation Army Navy airfield called Lingshui on Hainan Island. And they usually send up fighters. They scramble a couple of jets to check out the American plane. There's a pilot named Wang Wei um, who had been at the time. Uh, getting a little too close for comfort. Uh, he would fly intercept routes. Uh, he had even flown close enough so that he could hold up an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper with his email address <laughs> written on it, and you could read it. And if you can read something in the window of the neighboring plane, you're too close. Very, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely true. And they also did something called shunting, where the, the faster plane flies underneath the slower uh, P-3. The P-3 is a two-prop plane kind of lumbers through the air. The jet comes underneath, uh, coasts up just in front of it, and then as it's rising up in front of the P-3, you blast the afterburners, and that uh, shot of hot exhaust gases expands rapidly and rises and creates great uh, turbulence on the plane behind. Uh, and so you can imagine somebody sitting at their desk on the P-3, got a cup of coffee, a laptop, they're trying to do their work, and all of a sudden everything's flying through the air. And, and what uh, Shane Osborne, the pilot, told us happened on this case was that as the uh, the MiG, the Chinese fighter jet, flew underneath to rise up, it cut it a little bit too close. It stalled. It didn't take off in time. And so it clipped the, um, what would that be, the left uh, propeller of the P-3, chopped the MiG in half. He spiraled out uh, down into the sea, and neither uh, Mr. Wong nor his plane was ever seen from or heard from again. He had a wingman who was above the uh, P-3 who was kind of watching this, but uh, his view was of Wong was obscured by the, the P-3. And so all he saw was Wong fly underneath. The P-3 kind of ducked down and to the left after it lost its propeller on the left side. And it, he flew back to Ling Shui to report that there had been this crash. Um, and for the first maybe 15 seconds after the crash, the P-3 uh, was spiraling down towards the ocean itself. Uh, the Os Osborne uh, told everybody to prepare to evacuate. They did so, and he was able to 
regain control of the plane. If you look at the pictures of the plane, it's pretty astonishing that he was able to do so to I his agree. credit. I agree. Um, so then once he had control of the plane, he had to decide where to put it down. Uh, he could have flown back to Vietnam, but it's quite a ways. The closest airfield was the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy airfield at Lingshui, and so he chose to put it down there. Uh, they had a little while to destroy what they could. Uh, I think it exposed a lack of training and equipment. They they were bashing their laptops on the floor and pouring coffee on it and trying to tear up phone book-sized documents. And um, there was a lot of uh, information on the plane that didn't need to be there on a daily uh, basis. So there was reference materials on routes that they'd flown, other intelligence targets, the names of people. There was a lot of stuff on there that shouldn't have been on there. Um, but anyways, they flew to Ling Shui. Uh, we have international agreements with many countries. When there's an air emergency, there's a frequency that you use. We didn't have one with China at the time. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've made that arrangement. So he did a mayday, asked for permission to land, wasn't given permission to land because the Chinese said they didn't hear the, the request. He lands at Ling Shui, um, reports back to base that they've landed safely. Uh, the crew continued to do what they could to destroy things on board. The PLA sounded, uh, surrounded them with guns drawn, and uh, they disembarked, and that's where we got involved. Yeah. So we flow down there. Typically, every night we would meet with members of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs who were assigned to Hainan Island. They would take us out to meet the crew, um, we would come back. My job was to organize the press conferences afterwards and to deal with the press. Uh, and initially there were a handful of people from the New York Times, the Washington Post bureaus in Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong. By the end of it, there were about 150 journalists. It got to be a bit of a zoo. But typically we'd come back. I would call Washington and Beijing to find out um, what was happening because they're doing the negotiations there as well. Sure. Uh, and I would be told that negotiations were at a sensitive stage. Please, uh, whatever you do, don't make things any worse. Right. I'd pass that on to General Sealock. He would uh, address the journalist and say that uh, we've met the crew. They're in good shape. The morale is high. They're looking forward to going home. Then we'd go up to our hotel room and call President Bush on the cell phone. Sealock would tell Bush that we've met the crew, they're in good shape, their morale's high, they're looking forward to going home. A few minutes later, Bush would do a live shot from the Oval Office telling the world <laughs> that the crew's in good shape and yeah. that the morale's high and they're looking forward to going home. And we did that kind of kabuki dance for 11 days. Mm -hmm. uh, on the 11th day, we were awakened about 4 in the morning and told to take the back stairs down to the parking garage so that we could leave the building with lights off in the dark and not be noticed. Mm -hmm. uh, and we drove down to the airfield, to the, the, the civilian airport, excuse me, um, where there was a charter jet that had been brought in from Continental and uh, a 24-passenger bus that brought the crew out. And we shook everybody's hand. They loaded up on the plane, and their stewardesses on there from Continental, and you know they're all ready to go. Um, we're kind of there's a lot of goodwill between us and the members of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You know this could have been a lot worse. Everybody, sure, good job and all. And the engines have started. The pilots are going through their pre-flight checks, and, and, and they're just about to go. And somebody comes running out with a document from the terminal building saying, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> and he brings out the flight plan. 
And Continental has logged the flights saying that they're going to fly from Guam to Hainan Island, ROC. So the ROC is the Republic of China, the <laughs> name that um, Taiwan uses, a uh, 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 political entity that the PRC, the People's Republic of China in Beijing, doesn't recognize. Yeah. And so the guys from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs are, you know, you can just see them rolling their eyes thinking, oh, these goddamn stupid Americans. <laughs> and and Sealock grabs the document and a pen and runs up the stairs of the plane. Uh, we later learned that CNN was filming us from the, the border of the airport. We didn't know at the time. So if you look at the, the filming of this, he falls on the stairs, and there's a, 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 an expletive <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> shouted at that point. He runs up onto the plane, goes into the cockpit, and, and rather uh, using some forceful Elizabethan language, <laughs> tells the uh, pilot that he needs to cross off PRC Right, I mean, cross up ROC, right in PRC, and initial it. And so Sealock brings it down and gives it to the guys from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And you can kind of see them, boy, this is, a, you know, this is a real insult to us, and, and uh, I'm not sure we can let this go. We should probably wake up somebody in Beijing and get their permission. Finally, they just said, you know, no, it's yeah. okay, off you go. Yeah. Um, and this whole thing was triggered by, um, we had, Sealock uh, was a pilot, in the military. Our Admiral uh, Preer, who was our ambassador at the time, was a Navy right. fighter pilot. And then we had Colin Powell as Secretary of State. So three military guys all talking to each other, good chain of command. They knew about the flight. They knew it wasn't our fault. Um, we did an, a, a letter called the Two Apologies. So we expressed uh, to the people of China and to the family of Wang Wei our sorrow of, about the loss. And then we expressed um, sorrow about the um, unauthorized landing on Ling Shui Island. Mm -hmm. We didn't take any responsibility. There's no acknowledgement that we were culpable in any way. Yeah. Uh, the letter was signed by the ambassador and was sent to the foreign minister, which is kind of a, um, on protocol purposes, you should be at the same level. So yeah. I think today, if we were to do that, we'd probably have to have somebody more important sign it. And I'm sure they would not let us get away with the, you know, just crossing off PRC and writing in ROC. Sure. I think a more assertive China today would say, yeah, we'll let the crew go when Meng Wanzhou, the, the, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, who's now being held under house arrest in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Th they would demand more today, I suspect. Sure. But anyways, very interesting. Uh, yeah. So that, that is a fantastically interesting story. Uh, that is more details than I'd ever heard before, and, uh, and I'd heard quite a few of those details as a, as a career intel officer about that, that particular flight and what happened. Uh, but I think, I think your, your uh, recounting of that tells us it's informative in a lot of ways in, in sort of Chinese thinking and the honor uh, piece to it and whatnot in, in these international relations piece. So that actually is a perfect way to step into our first question as we start talking in detail about the People's Republic of China. So President-elect Biden will be, will be stepping into the job in a week. Uh, what do you think are the three most difficult challenges he's going to face in establishing an effective working relationship with uh, Xi Jinping? Oof. He's... Uh he hasn't been dealt a very strong hand, uh, and he's going to have problems. The first thing is that he has domestic priorities. You know, he's going to have to take care of the pan pandemic. I think probably the first three things on his list should be the pandemic, the pandemic, and the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, secondly, public opinion and opinion within Congress is um, more virulently anti-Chinese than I think any time since I started following China more than 40 years ago. Yeah. And the third thing is that I think 
China feels right now that they've got the upper hand, that time is on their side, they're perfectly content. The, the status quo suits, suits them better than it suits us. So I don't see China um, going out of its way to accommodate us. Um, we can talk in detail about any of those three if you'd like, but it's going to be difficult. Yeah, well, let, let's do that. Uh, so our administrations are four years in, in length. Uh, we, we know that our, our fellow Minnesotan, uh, Jake Sullivan, is the incoming National Security Advisor. Right. So let's put you on the National Security Council staff. And uh, because you've been a, a China hand for 40 years, uh, what, what advice are you going to give to President Biden on how to craft a, a, an approach to working with China for the next four years? Since China has the upper hand, as right. you mentioned. The first thing, I think, would be something that they've already said they were going to do many, many times, and that's to work more closely with allies. Um, we haven't done that under the Trump administration. And in fact, China has done a better job of putting together multilateral um, agreements for its own benefit. China traditionally has never done multilateral agreements. Up until November of last year, the first one they did was RCEP, yeah. which is now the, the biggest trade agreement in the world. And then just at the end of last year, they did the um, investment agreement with the EU. Yeah. Uh, and so I think China has done a better job of building coalitions that support China than we have. But uh, if you look at China's trade partners up until maybe the beginning of 2019, the first six trading partners, the EU, the U.S., Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, you know, those are our friends. Right, um, right. Last year, ASEAN, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, uh, jumped over the United States and is now number two. But for most of China's trading partners are our allies, and we should be working more closely with them as a group to have... Uh, a coordinated policy on China trade and on these issues like Hong Kong and South China Sea and Xinjiang and so forth. Okay. That would be number one. I'd also say they should strengthen the organizations that help us compete uh, against China on trade, particularly the WTO. Uh, there's two things that happen with the WTO that I blame our, or our government for. One is that the WTO has something called appellate courts. Mm -hmm. You file a claim against me, the WTO, I lose, I can appeal. It goes to the appellate court. There's supposed to be five judges on the appellate court. They serve fixed terms. So when they f end their term, they retire. And they're now, and you need three for a quorum. Mm -hmm. There's fewer than three now, and we haven't allowed them to nominate new ones. So the appellate court has been hobbled. It, it mm -hmm. doesn't work right now. And so nobody is um, pursuing WTO cases uh, all the way through anymore. Okay. The second thing is that the WTO doesn't have uh, a leader. There were two candidates in the last election, one from South Korea and one from Nigeria. Interestingly enough, the Nigerian woman has dual citizenship. She's part American. And we pushed for the um, South Korean candidate. The rest of the world wanted the Nigerian. Yeah. And, and um, we didn't allow, the, you know, there's a, it has to be unanimous. And so there's no head of the WTO right now. There's no uh, appellate court right now. And the WTO isn't perfect, but it is uh, an organization that would help us compete on a more level playing field. I think we can also continue to strengthen the XM. XM is um, the bank that promotes uh, sale of American goods overseas, the Export-Import Bank. Mm -hmm. That was kind of shut down a few years ago. It's coming back to life now. 
And uh, to the Trump administration's credit, they've done a bit to help it compete with China by doing things like reducing the, uh, the content that's required on American goods. Okay. Most of the things American companies sell overseas have some foreign content. It used to be, I think, you needed like 85% domestic content, and now they've reduced that considerably so that more American companies can compete. They've also, I think, reduced their standards on the loan so that um, Chinese banks, they can afford uh, to take risky loans because they're, they're supported by the state. Uh, American banks and the Exim had higher standards, and so I think they'll loosen those up a little bit so that we can compete against China on an even playing field. So okay. that kind of thing I think would be good. Yeah, those are all great uh, great ideas. Uh, so just for our audience, uh, r- reminder, we're, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with Mark Canning, a retired Foreign Service officer with deep diplomatic experience in China. Uh, Mark, you you spent time living and working in Taiwan. Right. Uh, you were also assigned to mainland China during during your State Department career. Could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the People's Republic of China on the Asian continent and the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan? I think our listeners would probably benefit from uh, somebody with your deep experience explaining what the difference is between the two Chinas that we often hear about in right. the press. And be careful with that expression, two Chinas. <laughs> it will not win you any friends in Beijing. <laughs> yeah. Officially, there's only one. Um, yeah, so I lived on uh, the island of Taiwan from 82 to 86. Um, at the time, there, were, there was no interaction between the two. You know, if you wanted to, f- you couldn't fly from Taiwan to the mainland. You couldn't make a phone call or mail anything. Everything had to go through Hong Kong. Uh, if you went to a bookstore and looked at something like an encyclopedia, the pages on Mao Zedong and that, they'd be all blacked out. Uh, you know, there was just... They were even, uh, in the years before I got to Taiwan, shelling each other's islands on alternate days. Right. You know, very, very bad relations. Today, there are um, country clubs outside of Shanghai where all 400 members are from Taiwan. Lots of intermarriage, students going back and forth, lots of Chinese tourists coming to the mainland. There's even some people on Taiwan who fear that uh, the economic dependence on the mainland will um, give them less flexibility with political independence. Okay. Um, It's very different. Um, But Taiwan is one of the most advanced and progressive countries in the world. They're the first country in Asia to have uh, same-sex marriages. They did a wonderful job on the pandemic. You know, Taiwan's had seven deaths, 23 million people and seven deaths. Right. It's an amazing story. If we did that on a per capita basis, we would have had about 100 deaths. Right. (laughs) What are we at now, 350,000 or something? Uh, you know, we're just up to almost astonishing. 389 yeah. or something that was reported so, this morning. When I was on Taiwan, you know, they didn't even have McDonald's yet. They were just turning into a, a, a globalized economy. They were still making things like CB radios and that sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. very modern economy now, very advanced. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I think the world of Taiwan, I hope the two countries are able to work it out so that Taiwan can have that, that it's not done by force it's done peacefully and by mutual consent uh, however they work up a deal yeah yeah so there's uh there's also things that you hear in the press these days talking about uh and, and some political leaders frame this that we're in a new cold war with the people's republic of china uh now uh, the la- you know when i started my naval career we were coming to the end of the actual cold war uh the the warsaw pact had collapsed the soviet union fell shortly after i got re- received my commission so 
I do recall the Cold War, but I, I'm pretty sure that the Cold War against the Soviet Union was significantly different than what we see today in our competition with the People's Republic of China. W- would you agree? Or? I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, as it turns out, before I was a, a China hand, I studied Russian in college. So, yeah, <laughs> I went to the Soviet Union uh, as a student. I lived there for a couple of months. Um, a group of students, we flew to Belgium and at Schiphol, the airport there, rented some VW vans, drove up into Scandinavia, entered through Finland and drove into the Soviet Union towards uh, what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So I spent a couple of months there. Um, it, it took me about a day to figure out that the Soviet Union was this underdeveloped economy that had nuclear weapons and a space program. And I was just scratching my head thinking, why are people worried about this? I'll give you an example. Um, One of my concerns was uh, finding gas for the cars. Uh, There weren't very many cars on the road, first of all, because people didn't have cars then. So there weren't very many gas stations. But you found a gas station, and you had to tell the person in advance how much gas you wanted and pay for it. And then you would go out and put it in the car. And I remember one gas station, the hose was just a garden hose. It had no nozzle on it. And you had all these people standing around your car with plastic buckets, hoping that you had underestimated how much capacity you had in your gas tank. Because if you ordered, say, 14 gallons, and you only had space for 13 gallons, and that last gallon was going to come splashing out of your gas tank, and people would grab the hose and, and get what they could with free gas. And I, just, I, I was struck by another example... Um, a lot of the trucks there didn't have mud flaps, oh, and yeah. so they would spit up rocks at us. So my Volkswagen van lost its windshield down in Tbilisi in Soviet Georgia, and we had to send somebody without a windshield to drive from Soviet Georgia to Berlin because there were no Volkswagen dealers at the time in the Soviet Union. And I was just thinking, you know, how, how can we live in fear of a country that hasn't mastered mud flap or hose nozzle technology? And you look at it, compare it today... Volkswagen, I think last year Volkswagen sold more than 3 million cars in China. They have three plants. China has the most advanced automotive industry in the world. There are huge uh, companies making electric vehicles in China that most Americans have never heard of. Right. Neo or Xpeng or Li Auto. Mm-hmm. Um, China is at the heart of the global trading system. The Soviet Union was kind of peripheral. Mm-hmm. I mean, even at the height of our bilateral trade in 1979, Trade with the Soviet Union was less than 1% of our global trade. You know, cause compared to today, maybe similar to U.S. trade with Chile or Colombia or something like that. Right. Whereas China is right at the heart. China accounts for maybe 19, 20% of our global trade now. Yeah. You know, it's huge. So we need China in a way that we didn't in the Soviet Union. Reagan could go to Berlin and tell Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He could say whatever he wanted, and China didn't react. You compare that to what happened when the the manager of the Houston Rockets reposted a tweet that said, I stand with Hong Kong, and China canceled NBA games. Uh, there, there are two broadcasters in China that show the games. There's CCTV, the national broadcaster, and then Tencent, which is an online streaming service. They have a contract with the NBA for $330 million. One post, and that it was canceled just like that. So China flexes its economic nationalism muscle in ways that that the Soviet Union never could. Okay, uh, you know it, it's not fair to say this is going to be this clash and that we have to stand up to them because we need China. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, we need it. Um, 
There are 64 countries in the world for whom China is the main trading partner, and that includes Germany and South Korea, countries where we have our soldiers defending them. You know, and, and Korea is in a real bind now. They have a dilemma because they know that China is more important to their economy than, than America is. Yeah. There are more Korean students now studying in China than studying in the U.S. because those young people know their future is with China. So the idea that we're going to stand up to China and, and wait for it to implode the way the Soviet Union did, that's, you know, that's farcical. So it's really more about going to marriage counseling and figure out how to get through we this rough, spot, rough yeah. patch. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with Mark Canning, a retired Foreign Service officer with deep diplomatic experience in China. So we've already hit a little bit on trade, uh, and I think it's important that we continue on this because it's pretty clear that our relationship with China is pretty vital, uh, especially in the trade area. Can you tell us a little bit about the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative is something that was started in 2012, 2013 by Xi Jinping, who's now in charge. Um, The idea was that they wanted to use infrastructure projects to expand their sphere of influence and their, their trade routes. You know, if you look at the U.S., we have immediate neighbors, Mexico and Canada. Um, it's a market of about a half a billion people, 500 million. It's sizable and all. But if you look at China, just the immediate neighbors, the ones with which they share land borders, it's about three and a half billion people. I mean, it's half the planet. Right. And so the idea was that they would use these infrastructure projects to link the countries together. Um, China, for example, right now gets a lot of its uh, oil through from the Mideast or from Africa uh, through ships through the South China Sea. If they can put pipelines in from Kazakhstan or something, then they have a way of getting oil that can't be uh, intercepted or interdicted by uh, American Navy ships. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this whole thing, I think, this uh, Belt and Road Initiative, along with other attempts like RCEP that we'll talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. um, has given China a greater ability to disengage from the U.S. than the U.S. has right now trying to disengage from China. China will um, increase its trade with its neighbors uh, and increase diplomatic ties with its neighbors in ways that help China disengage from the U.S. Okay. So we've heard, uh, and th- and I think it's it's a true statement that China uh, has played a little unfairly in the global trade uh, uh, world. Just a, just a bit. If you're advising the Biden team uh, mm-hmm. on this economic piece, uh, would you support an effort to reopen negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Absolutely. And uh, why is that? Because we're stronger with allies than we were without the the TPP, which was negotiated under the Obama administration. Uh, 11 countries, a little bit more than a third of the world's trade. China was not going to be in that. And we negotiated a lot of the rules for that organization. We set standards that uh, that we would have been able to say to China, if you want to join this huge trading body, you're going to have to meet our standards on uh, forced transfer of technology, forced labor, Mm -hmm. uh, IP. There are a number of ways where we would have had leverage over China. By pulling out, we've lost that leverage. but one of the things the Biden administration did was name a woman named Catherine Tai is going to be their U.S. trade rep. Um, she's uh, Taiwanese descent, speaks Mandarin fluently, 
had a lot of experience with USTR, and she was the uh, general counsel on trade for the House Ways and Means Committee. She has a lot of experience building coalitions in the WTO to go against China. So I think she's going to be great. I think it was a, a wise move to bring her in. Um, but, yeah, we need, to, we need to build more coalitions. And if we can get back into the what's now called the comprehensive, uh, the CPTPP, China's expressed some interest. Xi Jinping said he wanted to get in it as well. And so I think we need to act fast and get back in that. And, and it will help us. It'll be good for us, I think. Yeah, so it's my understanding that when, when America uh, pulled out of a Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, negotiating, uh, that the, that agreement was sort of on hold for a while, but China stepped in with the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, right. the RCEP. Right, so and, the— and can you tell us a little bit about the that? The other 11 countries in the TPP went ahead with it without the United States. Um, basically, it's the agreement we want. There are a couple of issues that were very important to the U.S. and not so important to the other countries, and those have been dropped. Okay. But uh, basically, they went ahead, and I think they would like us to come back in. Uh, so we'll have to see. I, I'm expecting there to be some movement on that, but we can't tell. So RCEP is um, an agreement between ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 10 of them, plus five other partners, China, Japan, New Zealand, uh, Australia, and South Korea. Okay. Um, ASEAN is an important organization that I feel Trump slighted. Obama went to the ASEAN summit seven times during his eight years. The only year he didn't go was the year when there was a U.S. government uh, budget shut down and, and he couldn't go. So Trump went once and then he sent Mike Pence and Wilbur Ross and O'Brien, the national security advisor. He didn't go. Uh, and I, I think we missed a chance to be part of something. It's now the biggest trade organization on the planet, uh, 30% of the world's trade. It will help China integrate supply lines mm -hmm. in Asia. It'll help make um, inter-Asian trade stronger. And, and if you look at you know the China's partners, uh, Japan's number three, Korea's number four, uh, Australia's number six. So those are, those are countries that we should be dealing with, but they're strengthening their ties with China right now, again, which will make it harder for us to put pressure on China. So one of the things that we know China is putting huge investments into right now are, are uh, clean energy, mm -hmm. uh, big data, artificial intelligence, uh, advanced weapon systems. Uh, do you think we're headed for a conflict with China? Uh, there's certainly going to be competition in many of those areas. Um, China's done a pretty good job. Uh, you know, China, for a long time, its economy was based on exporting cheap labor-intensive goods, textiles, shoes, toys, furniture, clothing, those kinds of things. China's trying to move out of that and into uh, higher value-added goods. And they've done a reasonably good job with uh, high-speed rail, um, with solar panels. Uh, they haven't done such a good job with airplane industry, um, with semiconductors and some other things. But they have a, a push made in China 2025. They want to see if they can get uh, world domination in some of these. Mm -hmm. And there's, they're bound to uh, come into conflict with the United States. This is why I think if we had a trading block that had agreements on how we would deal with China, that we're not going to uh, sell China sensitive technology in these fields, that should be something that's done on a coordinated basis and not on an ad hoc basis the way it's being done now. A coordinated basis between us and our allies and exactly. close trading partners yes. other than China. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we're, we're coming into the end of our, uh, of our show today. Are there any other topics you think we should talk about with regards to China? Well, there's a, a, a legacy that's left over from the Trump administration, or there will be 
in another week. And that's the so-called Trade One Agreement, the, the Phase One Agreement that was signed uh, in January of last year. Um, uh, Trump actually deserves credit for pushing China, for calling China out on its misbehavior in trade. Um, it's He's not the first person to do it, but he's the first person to really bring it to the prominence that it had mm-hmm. under his organ- administration. Um, but he put in tariffs on about $350 billion worth of goods that are still there. And uh, I think the estimates I saw was that American importers paid something like $80 billion in tariffs. Uh, and they're still going to continue to pay that. And, and most of those tariffs, the costs are going to be passed on to the American consumers. Um, so that's something that Biden's going to have to deal with. I don't expect him to get rid of the tariffs anytime soon, mm-hmm. but he's going to have to do something with that. Um, the whole phase one agreement, the deal was that China would, using their purchases from 2017 as a basis, they would buy $200 billion in additional goods above what they bought in 2017. Um, they're nowhere near meeting those goals right now. And in fact, it, it's interesting, this is something that's not very well known, is that when the Chinese came to sign the agreement uh, on January 15th, uh, the day before they did the signing agreement, they slipped in a clause called a force majeure clause that basically says through uh, natural disasters or other circumstances beyond our control, if either party is unable to meet its obligations under this agreement, future consultations will be held. Okay. So they're, they gave themselves a way out. Um, presumably they had anticipated the economic disturbances that would be caused by the pandemic that they knew about. Right. Um, I don't have any evidence for that, sure, but sure. I think that's the case. So this agreement uh, is not going to be uh, fulfilled, and the tariffs are still there, and that's something that they have to do. The other thing I think that's hanging over is the Meng Wanzhou, who's the daughter of the founder of Huawei, the, the CEO, um, that I think is a huge irritant, and we don't gain that much out of it. She's been arrested because uh, a subsidy of Huawei that she claims was a wholly foreign-owned entity, we claim was kind of a shell company, uh, sold some uh, telecommunications goods to Iran in violation of trade with Iran okay. sanctions. Um, I think China would love to have that whole thing go away. And if, if we need something to show that we to show goodwill that we want to meet China halfway, then you'll probably see some movement on that. All right. Well, Mark, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. I know we concentrated quite a bit on uh, diplomacy and, and trade issues today. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I can have you back again uh, later this year and we talk a little bit more about uh, some of the issues linked to China. There are. It's going to be an interesting year. China's got the anniversary of the CCP, the Communist Party, July 1st. That'll be a big deal. Uh, China's going to be hosting the Winter Olympics next year, so in the run-up to that, there'll be a lot of attention on China. Um, The 20th anniversary of the P3 incident, April 1st, you know, if China wants to uh, mobilize anti-American sentiment, you'll see that made, they'll make a big deal of that. So we'll be able to tell kind of where China's going by some of these things. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, Mark Canning, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for being our guest on National Security This Week. Uh, We'll be back next Wednesday, January 20th at 9 a.m. with another edition of National Security This Week. I'm John Olson, and I'm your host for National Security This Week. We're broadcasting from KYMN Radio in Northfield on AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. If you have any ideas about topics you'd like us to tackle, Please please feel free to contact KYMN Radio. I'll do my best to find a guest to address your topic. 
Have a fantastic Wednesday and a great finish to your week. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.